Hey, Carrie, how are you today? I'm doing well. How is it with your soul, my friend? My soul's in pretty good shape, and I'm sure it's going to be in even better shape when uh, we have a chance to talk to our two wonderful guests today. I am so excited to be welcoming Judith Valente and Brother Paul Quinnen to the podcast today. Me too. So to everyone out there, welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit between us And to us and how we live between the words Well, I want to get right into our conversation, but before we do that, I'd like to give a brief uh, little introduction uh, to both of our guests today, Judith Valente wears many hats, which include being an award-winning author, journalist, poet, TV and radio producer, speaker and retreat leader. Uh, she's amazing. Her most recent collaborative book is How to Be, A Monk and Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship, co-authored with Brother Paul Quinnen. Um, Brother Paul is one of the best-known monks from the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane. Uh, he became uh, a novice in 1958 under the beloved spiritual and contemplative writer Thomas Merton. In addition to his usual monastic jobs, Brother Paul is a poet with many beautiful books of poetry to his credit, a photographer, uh, and a co-author uh, of, of several works with Judith Valente. Uh, his most recent uh, individual book is In Praise of the Useless Life. So welcome to the show, uh, Judith and Brother Paul. Thank you. Thank you. It is wonderful to have you here. I fully share Carrie's enthusiasm. And I want to dive right in uh, with inviting you to talk about this um, sort of um, unusual friendship you have, at least unusual in the eyes of some people. It's not unusual in in my eyes, because I have this unusual friendship with Carrie. I mean, after all, she's a world-class singer-songwriter, and I'm a guy who can't carry a tune in a bucket. So <laughs> how do you explain that? Um, but I'm, everybody will be intrigued, of course, by the fact that a monk of Gethsemane and a woman who's out in the world with family and professional responsibilities have chosen to walk together in this wonderful way and would love to learn more about where that started and how you both experience that as time goes by. Why don't we start with you, Judith? Okay, I'd be happy to. Because I always say uh, I'm probably closer to Brother Paul than to any man except my husband, perhaps. Um, so it is kind of unusual, a married professional woman out in the world uh, with this friendship with a, a monk and, and a cloistered order, not just any order, but a cloistered order. Um, we met actually first through my professional life, which was um, I was working for PBS TV, and I went to the Abbey of Gethsemane to do a piece on the 40th death anniversary of Thomas Merton. So this would have been 2008, a while back. And I asked to be able to speak to a monk who had known Merton personally and was directed to Brother Paul. I would say he and I pretty much immediately connected. He writes poetry, I write poetry. We both had this love of the Japanese haiku. 
And Brother Paul talking about his own poetry gave me the inspiration to come back a year later to Gethsemane and do a profile just on Brother Paul. And that was a profound moment in my life because I, I spent, you know, two or three days with Brother Paul and filming there. And in the course of the interview, he said some things that were really life-changing for me. I asked him, what is the purpose of the Trappist life in the modern world? And he said, well, the purpose of, of the Trappist life is to show you don't have to have a purpose. <laughs> the purpose of life is life, to live your life. And this was a real revelation for someone like me, who has always been a workaholic and an overachiever, always feeling like I had to earn my keep on this earth. And here was this man saying, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. You're just to live your life. The fact that you're alive is affirmation enough that you deserve to be here. So I'll leave it there and see if Brother Paul wants to add his perspective on that. So uh, Judith has pretty well described you know, the procedures as they have continued. And uh, eventually we produced a book together because of our mutual interest in the haiku, the Japanese form of poetry, that, that was published as The Art of Pausing by Okta in Chicago. And it is a series of haiku. Uh, we did the book in collaboration with Mike Bever, a, a, a former minister. And uh, then, of course, that wasn't enough. Uh, Judith wanted to do another book. And so that ended up in How to Be, which is a series of letters between the two of us on topics of mutual interest. Being a Benedictine oblate, she is very much attuned to uh, matters that are of my interest and of my life. And so it was a, a fruitful dialogue to begin with and has continued to be so. I'll just jump in and say, Brother Paul said I wanted to do this book. It wasn't, it wasn't quite as flat as that. It was that he and I were communicating all the time. You know, we met in 2008 and we had been communicating all these years. And I was receiving all of this wisdom from Brother Paul. And I felt I shouldn't be hoarding this for myself. I should be sharing it with other people. And I also felt that, you know, people like Brother Paul are becoming a, an extinguished species, so to speak. Uh, there aren't that many monks left in the world who have had 60 plus years in the contemplative life in the monastery. And so what I decided to do was to um, ask him if it would be all right if we, when we corresponded, we could at some point share these letters with the broader public. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I'd like to take my question one more step, if I may, and then I'm eager to know what, what where Carrie wants to ask a question or two. But, um, you know, I, it, just as the purpose of life is life, uh, it seems to me one might say that the purpose of friendship is friendship, the, that all these things that we treat as means to other ends are, in fact, ends in themselves and that it's a really uh, fundamental flaw in our thinking, maybe especially in the Western mind, to turn everything into a means to an end and ask, what, what can I squeeze out of this? But, but at the same time, I've long had a thought, and I wonder what you think about this, 
and it certainly has manifested in in my friendship with Carrie, that when you meet someone who you perceive as a friend, it's somehow a sign that you are here on earth for a similar calling, you know, in that larger sense of purpose, that, that friendship is not sort of a random thing, but it has to do with a resonance between two minds, two hearts, two souls that, that put you here um, for some of God's work. I'll just put it that way. Uh, th- does that make sense to you? Oh, yes. I, I think there's, a, there's a, a larger law of love and friendship, you know, which kind of s- invisibly steers these things along. Yeah, St. Ulred of Revaux, as well as St. Benedict, talked about uh, friendship as, as caring for one another's souls. Mm-hmm. And St. Ulred especially said that um, true friendship is based on two prongs. One is bene voluntas, mutual goodwill, and caritas, mutual caring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that that's what happened with Brother Paul and me in, the, in, in our first meetings that we felt, and he could speak for himself, but we, we felt this mutual caring and it turned into a care for each other's souls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so beautiful. I'm, I'm fascinated by the art that has been created uh, out of this friendship, but also just with the friendship itself. I mean, friendship is such a blessing and it's such a, a powerful force and force field in our lives and and can be. Um, I was looking at, you know, just the topics of your most recent book, How to Be. Uh, You really are delving into the contemplative life. And I love that it's a conversation between someone who has been living the contemplative life within a monastic lifestyle and then someone who's experiencing and practicing contemplative practice outside uh, of the monastic life. So, you know, you openly and vulnerably talk to one another in these letters about being and doing, resurrection and poetry, living and dying, purpose and call, hungry sheep, friendship, navigating the unexpected, living with the unimaginable, nature's magic spots, cultivating silence. I mean, there's so many beautiful topics here. And uh, one of the things I was so moved by is how openly and vulnerably you speak to one another. Y'all aren't, aren't just talking about the weather. <laughs> the, 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 the natural world comes into it quite a bit, but these are topics of the soul. So can you tell me what that's been like to uh, have this ongoing conversation about topics of the soul. I think that we both feel very comfortable with each other. And it gets gets back to that idea, again, that we can entrust each other's souls to one another. And I could talk to Brother Paul in a very profound, deep way about some of these topics that you mentioned. For example, um, dying living with the unexpected. There's a, there's a series of letters we wrote to one another during the pandemic when yes. people didn't know if they were going to, you know, wake up the next day and, and have this terrible illness. 
you know, you didn't know how long it was going to go on. So there's a series of letters on that. But I think that you have to have friends that you can speak about such things with. For example, you know, I'm, I'm of course, very close to my husband. <laughs> you know, he's my spouse. He's my best friend. Uh, he's my intimate partner. But, you know, are our conversations about the resurrection, <laughs> are our conversations about what's wrong with the church today? No, I mean, our conversations are, well, we have to go to the grocery store today and we have to get bananas and, you know, <laughs> oh, the car needs an oil change up, oh, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And so, you know, this was a real opportunity for both of us to bear our souls, but also thinking about topics that would be of interest and of value to other people, yeah. not just to us. Well, I always appreciate a, a conversation in depth, and it's not everybody you can have that with. And yeah. I found Judith is a good, willing, and articulate partner in such an exchange. And I, I think it, I hope it goes on indefinitely, but it's been very fruitful so far. And, you know, both have something to derive from such, such an exchange. Uh, I certainly have been able to um, have a better sense of what it is to live in the world, uh, to be uh, swept up in a career and then to find that uh, in the, at the end of all that, that there's, there's another and deeper part of life. And she's been an example to me and a, a confirmation of, you know, the life I am living, uh, which is, you know, a life of a seeker, a seeker and trying to live in depth in the presence of God. I know there's a part of me that's always wanted to be a monk. <laughs> hampered only by marriage and children and professional <laughs> responsibilities. Other than that, I'm good to go. But it, it has to do with that desire, uh, Brother Paul, to live closer to the source, um, you know, to live closer to that peace that passes all understanding mm -hmm. and to keep working on how to weave that into the life that I, to which I am called. Uh, because like you, I've, I do feel that my life is a calling. Um, I, I'd love to hear your responses to that and, and also to a, something that really comes to me as I listen to the two of you talk. There are millions and millions of people in the world who yearn for this kind of space, yeah. a space of depth conversation, a space where they can explore with someone who both listens well and responds well, things that really matter rather than just the flotsam and jetsam of everyday life. So any thoughts that you might have or that we might generate uh, during this podcast about how to, how to help people meet that need, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear that too. Um, so take it, take the, all of that wherever you'd like to take it, please. Well, you know, when you find it, I think it's a gift. And if you're open to it, uh, the gift will come, one form or another, and it might come in, you know, many ways. And no two friendships are the same. There are no two friendships which are the same. At least that's my experience. And so you have to come to, to sense 
well, what is the area? Where is the commonality? Where, where, uh, where is the, the giftedness of this particular friendship? And, you know, how far can it go? Well, fortunately, uh, uh, Judith was a willing, <coughs> a willing soul to go into the, depth, the depths of things, and, and, you know, with her mind and her uh, own experience to bring along. Mm-hmm. One thing Brother Paul and I have been doing a lot of is, is, is guiding retreats on correspondence as spiritual practice. Mm. Because, Parker, you're so right, people are yearning for that kind of connection, maybe more so even since we went through the pandemic experience. And something I tell people is just, just think of someone that you want to have this kind of correspondence with, this kind of communion, if you will. And, you know, it might be a spiritual advisor. It might just be a trusted friend. But the first thing to do is the first step of any writing, which is applying the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair, as E.B. White once said. (laughs) The art of writing is applying the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair. And just sitting down and writing that first letter to whomever you choose as your correspondent. And then, you know, see what happens from there. I always advise people that maybe they're not going to get a letter back. Um, And that's okay. You know, maybe the person that they thought they could have this with, this communion with, is not ready for that. Okay, maybe there's someone else to try. But the the first thing is to take that first step. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I think you're absolutely right, Judith, that um, the pandemic... In, in a sense, made monks out of everybody, right? At least in the sense that you're suddenly living within four walls and behind closed doors for a much longer period of time than you imagine. Some people discovered in that that they really love solitude. I, I know some people who are in their late 20s and early 30s who were just all over social media all the time and coffee dates and you know active face-to-face friendships and discovered in the pandemic that solitude was good for them. Um, Once they broke through some of the initial terror of just being alone with themselves, which any of us who've tried solitude for extended periods of time are familiar with that. But then the, the pandemic also put a premium on real friendships, real relationships, not just the surfacey stuff. But so I like very much this idea that correspondence can aid and abet that, and and it, you're you're taking the risk that you won't meet in the middle, as it were. But there's always someone else to try it with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, the, the media is not necessary. I find there are some friends. You know, I can never really, I cannot really communicate with them unless they're in person, present. Mm. Other people, and those people will be lousy on a phone conversation <laughs> or even with letters. Another person might be great on letters, but phone conversations don't work. So, it, mm. And so you, you just have to yield to uh, the chemistry of, of situations. 
Yeah, absolutely. Do you, you, Paul? Do you, do you mean is this the radical idea that Zoom won't solve all of our problems? My goodness. <laughs> well, I, I hate to become unpopular, but <laughs> <laughs> how un-American! <laughs> well, one of the things I, I I love that you know you both have different expressions of how you experience your lives in the world, but that you kind of met through the medium of writing, particularly haiku, The Art of Pausing is a beautiful book. And I have just loved this book for, for many years. Uh, and it's a series of haikus that you wrote. It was a, every day you would send each other a haiku and, and see what rose out of that uh, conversation. For three years, yeah. Yeah, I think mean, what an interesting practice to send each other um, a poem. Well, brother, brother Paul can talk a little bit about, I think, you know, haiku as, as his meditative practice. And then mm -hmm. he kind of turned me onto it as a meditative practice. Well, yeah. I mean, for me, meditation is largely keeping silence and being present to the moment and becoming alert and aware interiorly, but also exteriorly. And so every moment is different. I mean, one day you'll be sitting outside in, the, in a particular chair and the configuration of details will be different from the next day from the same chair uh, at the same time of day. And it, it, it's a gift of the moment. And I try to capture the gift of the moment and put it in words. And since haiku is so few words, it's not that much of a distraction from my meditation. And so uh, in, in articulating the gift, I can give that gift to other people in the spirit of the moment. Ho hopefully it's not just the, the images and the sounds, but it's also the mood and the, you know, the joy or the humor of the situation. You know, one thing Brother Paul and I encourage people to do is to do a haiku exchange with a friend. That's another form of communion, the way we did a haiku exchange. Um, and maybe maybe somebody's not in the mood to write a whole letter, but three lines, you know, a three-line poem, anybody can handle three lines. And so we encourage people as a, as a way of, again, connecting to share a haiku a day with people. And what I love about this meditative practice, being somebody who tries to be contemplative in the secular world, is that it, it slows me down. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. I, have to, I have to pause periodically and look and listen for what will be my three lines for the day. So that becomes my, my meditative practice. I you have know. a friend um, I call a, a detail buddy, and I've had different detail buddies in my life. And we basically text one another one line, one line in detail of whatever it is we noticed that day. So it's not in a form like a haiku, but it's a very similar process that you have to slow down, you have yeah. to pay attention. And because you really, really appreciate this person, you want it to be a nice detail. So you, you end up paying a little more attention to your day. It's like, ah, oh, that's a good detail. For years, I've gone back and forth, uh, one, one particular friend, and I get these wonderful, like, insights into her day, into what she's experiencing, what, what she sees, what she smells, what she tastes. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful practice. And 
to do it in a poetry form like you're talking about. You know, kind of takes. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, Carrie, because yeah. people now send me haiku. Total strangers yeah. send me cards with haiku now, <laughs> who have read the art of pausing. So I totally get what you're saying. And what a gift that is, you know, because poetry says so much more than it says. It points toward something, and so you you get the words, which are beautiful, but you also get this sense of what they're expanding into. So. You know, what a great practice. And like I said, I've loved the book, The Art of Pausing, you know, because there are haikus that you share, but also like very short meditations. So, you, you know, it's something you can open up and you know, read this beautiful haiku, but then read the meditation that goes with it. I think the, the big frame message that I'm getting at this moment, just to, again, to see if, if you see it this way or however you might want to respond or carry, um, there's immense value in solitude because so much of what we need is going on inside of us. Mm-hmm. And there's immense value in relationship, call it community, if you will, as long as you understand that community doesn't take more than one other person really to happen. This, this between us, what happens between us and what happens within us is worth being cultivated. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just think that what you're talking about always has both, of the, both poles of that paradox held together in these practices and these disciplines. Something comes up in silence in this moment. You capture it as best you can in a haiku or whatever. And then you share it with another person in one form or another because... Not to achieve an effect, but seems to me we'd all like to know that somehow we're seen and we're heard. And that's a gift that we can exchange with each other. As I think Paul may know, I was very influenced by Thomas Merton, the best teacher that I never met. Uh, Didn't even discover his writing until the year after he died. When I was a hard-pressed community organizer in Washington, D.C., really needing this the kind of grounding that Merton was offering to activists. And um, the, the richness of his solitude intrigued me, but as I came to know more about his life, so did the complexity and multiplicity of his relationships with, with people out in the world. Once in writing about him, I called him the noisiest silent monk who ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Paul would agree with that assessment, but it well, seemed to me he couldn't stop talking. <laughs> he regretted that, too. And he was a man of contradiction, to use his own word. Yes. And so he had this great love for silence and solitude, and yet at the same time he had this Oh, I mean, it was kind of like a destiny, really. I think he was born to be a writer. He was, yeah. he was born to be a man for others. And so it was a suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came to understand that. Thomas Merton famously said, I am traveling toward my destiny in the belly of a paradox. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that line. And I've always felt that the heart is opened by these 
paradoxes that we hold in our lives, such as the one we were just talking about in relation to your work, Judith and, and Paul, uh, the paradox between solitude and relationship, solitude and community, such an important one. Well, Brother Paul has some interesting insights about solitude, Parker, you know, that he's taught me. Maybe he could say a few words about that, which is um, the antidote to feeling lonely is to spend more time alone, mm-hmm. <laughs> he often says. Yeah, it's a matter. I mean, I, I found that myself, it's been part of my own experience, is to, um, you know, I feel dissatisfied, I feel there's something missing. If I go out in the woods and take a, a, a long walk, a hike, I come yes. back really feeling whole, and the, the whole feeling of dissatisfaction and loneliness just kind of evaporates. Because I think there's there is a difference between, you know, loneliness and solitude. They're different animals in a way. I also I have a question about um, because you're both artists. You know, you're both artists who love communicating with poetry and visual art and 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 all kinds of of language that. As a, as a person who is a contemplative and I have a contempl- contemplative practice, I've had people ask me, um, wow, you're a silent Quaker and you make your life in sound. What's with that? <laughs> you know, what's, what's up with right. that? And so tell me w- a little bit about that paradox, you know, what you find in the silence uh, and how that informs the language and the images that you bring to the world. I mean, the Trappists are a silent order. I mean, they maintain silence throughout most of the day. And yet, you know, Brother Paul is very much a man of words. Thomas Merton was very much a man of words. So I, I anxiously await his response to this. My response would be simply that my most con- some of my most contemplative moments are when I am writing. Uh. Um, you know, I'm really, whether I'm writing an essay or an article or a poem, you know, I'm going into the deepest part of my inner core for that. I'm, I'm drawing from, from my deepest interior for that. And for me, you know, there's many forms of contemplation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's centering prayer. Uh, there's walking in nature, as Brother Paul mentioned. And for me, it's, it's the act of, of creating, the act of writing is my most contemplative practice, I would say. Well, I, I understand perfectly what you mean. Uh, when I'm working on a poem or something, it's like I enter into, enter into a space that is kind of free from all my other involvements in the, in the day. And there's something very personal about that. And yet at the same time, you're, you're communicating. Well... I really haven't depended on writing as a part of my uh, mm, yeah. development as a monk. Um, I did a little bit of journaling. Now, I'm not a very avid journalist, but uh, I did some journaling. And, and and Merton encouraged me to keep a journal. He says, otherwise you'll lose it. You'll lose what you, what you experience. And I did some of that. But um, really... I, I, the first 40 years of my life here, I didn't depend on writing at all. 
and it wasn't something that I was a, of a major a major factor in uh, in my life or something that kept me going. Uh, but uh, as things developed, uh, that became a little bit more and more a factor in my life, my day, my uh, aspirations. And that's um, beginning to, it will be eventually realized in my publication of my journals, which is called Inwards and Outwards, a Monk's Journal. Mm. And that should be published next year by oh. Monk Fish Publications. Well, that's that's yeah. great. Looking that's forward wonderful. to that. Yeah. Well, I love, uh, in one of the series of letters, you, you do talk about, and I kind of loved it because it was so human. Brother Paul, it was like you were talking about how um, in the process of, of doing contemplative silence and meditation that, you know, I think those of us from the outside might think, okay, he's been doing this a lot of years. He's got it down. <laughs> but talking about moments of restlessness, moments when you were unsure, you didn't quite know what was, what was happening, what was, what was coming. And that, that contemplative practice isn't about always being right in the center of peacefulness and knowing exactly what's going on at all. And it was so beautiful to to have your experience, long experience with with that, but not uh, you know with the process of that and with staying with it. What what the gifts of staying with that are? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, perseverance. I think just uh, as you say, um, by your patience you will win your souls, <laughs> as, mm. as Christ said in the gospel. And I think that's uh, at least half, if not more, of the whole process. Just staying with it and let God do with it as, as God may. It uh, isn't, isn't a matter of looking for results. It's not a matter of looking for su success. Am I a successful meditator or not? Yeah. How good is this? You, you have to stop evaluating and just have faith that I'm here for the Lord. The Lord is, whether it's obvious or not, it, the Lord loves me more than I, appreciates it all more than I appreciate it myself. Yeah, and but it seems like also in that process, that patience, you know, eventually had to apply to yourself as well, like a sense of compassion with your journey. Yeah. Did I catch that right in the, that's in, right. the in those letters? Yeah, I think that's uh, so. It's it's not a matter of success. I I may I may be no better at meditating now than I was when I started out. Mm. It's ju it's just that I've gotten rid of some false expectations. Oh. And Judith, you've been practicing for a long time as well. I mean. Uh, not within the context of a monastic life, but you've really dedicated yourself to sticking with a contemplative practice, um, learning that it is a process and being really gracious with yourself, with the process and with others. Yeah, it was very, it was very heartening to me to see that Brother Paul still struggles with meditation <laughs> and prayer. 
because you know that's a big struggle for us. Who I mean, Carrie, you're on the road a lot um, mm. performing, and you know, and I'm traveling and trying to meet writing deadlines, and it's kind of hard to maintain the sort of prayer rhythm that you can maintain yeah. in, a, in a place like the Abbey of Gethsemane, which, you know, Brother Paul is so fortunate to have those built-in pauses into his day. I think eight times the monks paused for prayer at the Abbey of Gethsemane, eight times during the day. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was really heartened to hear him say that you have to kind of let go of your expectations of how, how prayer is supposed to be or how you're supposed yeah. to feel. And just let yourself be, you know, let yourself be in the experience that, that you're having of, of prayer in that moment. And that prayer can look different ways. I love that you described um, you and Brother Paul, oh, like climbing trees, walking yes. bare, I mean, walking barefoot. I mean, like there was a lot of different ways it looked. Yeah, he, um, he got me to climb a tree for the first time in my life. I was in my 40s. And... Um, <laughs> He taught me to walk backwards occasionally to get a new perspective on things. Oh, which which again yeah. is a wonderful wonderful spiritual practice. Try walking backwards sometimes in a familiar place. Oh, I'm going to try that. That's a great and, idea. Uh, <laughs> talk about dancing, our dancing barefoot, Brother Paul. Oh yes, well, I I do that in the summertime as a habit, but um, yeah. Judith was so envious of the, uh, that she wanted to to experience the same thing in front of Merton's Hermitage. And that was in June. It was a rather rainy day, but uh, so the, the grass was nice and damp and wet. And uh, it was, um, I hope, the, the beginning of a, a new habit for her. Was that yeah. the dancing or the walking backwards? <laughs> Well, at least the dancing. <laughs> yeah, it, you know something he something he always he always told me was to occasionally walk barefoot uh, to to regain the intelligence of my feet. I think that's how you put oh, it, Brother Paul. Yeah, I love that. Well, as you get older, you know, and you you lose your sensations in your feet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, neuropathy. So. Going barefoot is a good remedy to that, and I, I think my feet are more sensitive now than they were before I started going barefoot, and my toes have straightened out. They used to be kind of cramped up by shoes, bent, mm -hmm. you know. Well, now they're mm -hmm. they're almost straight. I just I just love these things. As a, you know, we're going to climb a tree as a contemplative practice, and now walking back. I'm going to do that after this podcast. I'm going to go walk backwards somewhere. And well, just make like, sure you'll get a song out of it, Carrie. Yeah. 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 Well, make sure make sure it's in a safe place so you don't trip over anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I do live kind of right where a pond drop. There's a drop off into a pond, so I'll have to be careful. Make make sure I don't. Oh, no. remember, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> save, save, save your feet. Well, I, I, guess, I guess what we're all, what we're both trying to say, or all four of us, is that you don't have to run off to an ashram or uh, a monastery to live a, you know, to live in a contemplative way and in, in a more intentional way in the everyday world. I think that's so important, Judith, and I, it was exactly yeah. where I was thinking about going next. So let me. Well, it, it seems to me everybody is potentially a contemplative of some sort. And I think I've seen that in 
real life and people in all kinds of walks of mm -hmm. life. So yeah. I want to test by my unapproved by anybody definition of <laughs> contemplation on you and see if it, if it works out. I know this has no imprimatur, no authority behind it at all, just, just me. Um, contemplation is any way a person has of penetrating illusion and touching reality. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. I think I just got the imprimatur. <laughs> that really means a lot, Paul, truly coming from you. Contemplation is any way a person has of, of penetrating illusion and touching reality. It's, it's not about technique, um, but, it, it, but it is about that discipline in your life, which like parenting, for example, that can take you right down to the place where you realize that what what this is really about is the capacity to love, yeah. and and nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, you 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 know you may not be effective. You may not, in, in many cases, can't save your kids from calamities of one sort and another. But you can keep loving. You can keep loving, and in that process you get boiled down to a place where everything else except your ability to love looks like an illusion, because it is. It is an illusion. Your professional success, whatever it may be that you've been measuring yourself by. And, and I feel that the same thing is true in the big world where we're called to be citizens or good neighbors, that there, we live in a in a world now where where there is such a, a scrim of illusion and deception over everything, and the contemplative is one who can penetrate that and keep finding, or at least keep looking for, the north star, you know, the true orientation. What was it Merton called the point Viers or something like yeah. that? I can't pronounce the French. Yeah, can't pronounce the French. What do you think? I just had a conversation with an 87-year-old man, or maybe he's older, who had a, quite a career in uh, chemistry and as a teacher in one of the New York City colleges. He said, if I've done any good in this world, it's because of the four kids I've had. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Lovely. Well, you know... St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a Cistercian abbot, same, same order that Brother Paul belongs to, the Cistercians, um, talked about seeking the real behind the real. Hmm. And it's something that, you know, I always tried to do as a journalist. And maybe that was, that's why, you know, in my, in my later years in life, um, you know, as I, as I entered, say, my 40s, I started to be more and more interested in the contemplative life and in the monastic life, because it seems to me that they are always seeking the real behind the real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Kind of putting it all together, everything we've been talking about has been just this exploration of the real beneath the real, you know, that we have our daily lives and experiences, and that there's this, what is it, the unbroken presence that's always just below the surface, if, if we're willing to, to be with it. And so I love that. And, and with the, a sense of humor, too. I, I do love that you guys talked about such 
really powerful, soulful topics, you know, this serious stuff of our life. But then you realize that you're walking and you're dancing in front of Merton's cabin. And it's like, the joy is also real. The light is real. Human, you know, humor is also real as much as our striving um, and our longing. Well, yeah. another matter of importance is compassion. Uh, one thing I learned from Judith was that when, when she is, is advising uh, other young journalists, she said, you should write with compassion. Hmm. And that really pertains to every search for the real. Anytime we try to find the real and the real, I think you'll find it in conjunction with compassion, if not simply through compassion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we should offer a footnote to listeners that Merton has an amazing, beautiful essay on the general dance, inviting oh, us yeah. to join in the general yeah. dance. And here we have some, yeah, some examples of it right here. Well, Carrie, I'm fearful that we're going to have to start moving toward the I end know. of our conversation. You know, I I have loved this conversation so much. There's there's just been so much richness here, and so much for me to think about. Uh, but we do usually ask our last question um, of the of each podcast is, well, what's on your growing edge? <laughs> which which comes from Howard Thurman, another another great mystic yes. like Merton. I'm, I'm going to let Brother Paul go first. Well. I, I think that, you know, the, the real challenge is purity of heart. Mm -hmm. To be able to do things with a pure intention. That is, not simply through self-interest, but with a, a love for God. I do this because it pleases God. I do this because it is something that um, we're always sharpening and we're always honing this radical quest and this radical seeking that we started out with. And sometimes it gets honed for us and sometimes we have to look at ourselves and do an examination of conscience and and do a little bit of uh, focusing ourselves. And I think that's going to be the rest of my life. I hope it is. Uh, I, sometimes I have doubts about myself, whether I'm actually doing it or not, maybe more often than not. But I, I do see that as the growing edge. You know, you, you, you could say you're sharpening the edge. Uh, it's more like a point, you know, you're, you're pointing in the right direction. Hmm. Yeah. Well, my growing edge, I guess it's two-pronged. One has to do with my work. I'm working on this new book about what Americans can learn from Italians about living a more contemplative life based on my many, my many stays and experiences in Italy. I think contemplation is built into the Italian lifestyle much more than ours. But on, on the other level, on a deeper, more spiritual level, I would like my growing edge to be moving more at the pace of my soul, to mm. use a phrase that comes from Parker and, and, and you, Carrie, as well. And that means um, learning to pause more frequently, to listen more intently, to speak more softly, and to understand more deeply. 
because I think what we really need right now in our in our country, especially, is is more understanding of one another. Amen to that. Yeah. Amen to what you both said. It, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to be with both of you. And I, I, for me, the cherry on the uh, on the top of the Sunday here is that I got official acknowledgement of my definition of contemplation <laughs> from an actual <laughs> contemplative. <laughs> you got a wow. <laughs> That should be your next book. Just build a book out of that definition. I'll do that once I catch my breath. <laughs> uh, again, I'm going to mention that uh, you have a new book that's out called How to Be, and also other books that you've done together, uh, The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed, and, um, and many books uh, that you've done individually as well. So um, I do hope folks check those beautiful books out, and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much. And you all remember that Gethsemane sells terrific fruitcake, fudge, and other items which are banned by my wife. But I sneak them in anyway. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like the show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production, and because she shines. <laughs>